Well, we want to welcome you to the Reformed Informants. This is a podcast devoted to biblical exposition, systematic theology, and practical application for the good of the church. I'm Lance Burroughs, along with TJ Darty, and we are the Reformed Informants. Man, this is new territory for season two. We got a late night recording going on. Yeah, um, I, I need to express a little bit of discontent on my end of things. We sat down to record this on Monday, and we got like halfway through, I don't know, something like that. And I was just crushing it. Like I was just, everything's just flowing. I had some incredible one-liners that were off the, that were not even on the script, not even in our episode guide. And we lost it. So here we are, late night, making up for lost time. And I can't remember anything I said, so this is just going to be terrible. Nah, just want to say that up front. Look, God God knows that effort we put in on, on Monday afternoon, um, recording half of that episode that is now deleted and in the annals of history. <laughs> it's gone. It's gone. I had such incredible content, and now the listeners will never hear it, and it's just going to be back to my old terrible self. Hey, the temp- yeah, yeah. The temptation and battle, though, that I'm finding tonight is I just had dinner and I'm feeling cozy <laughs> and I'm tired from a long day, a uh, long day at the church. A good day, but a long day. Well, on, on the other side, busy, right? You're going to say on the other side, I wrote an entire sermon today, did all my legwork yesterday, did all the writing today, um, had prayer meeting, and I haven't had dinner and it's almost nine o'clock p.m. So, I'm on the other end. I'm ready to to crush this episode. I'm just I'm just riding riding a wave of adrenaline. They're gonna come crashing down here soon. Yeah, ma'am. Well, we're gonna pick each other up. All yeah, the listeners are picking us up in spirit. Man, <laughs> we appreciate you guys. Um, but man, TJ, I'm gonna kick it back over to you uh, and let you give us the usual recap on where we've been in our systematic, uh, in particular, the last two episodes of our Christology study. Yeah, um, I'll try to be I'll try to be brief and concise here. If you're new to the to the podcast, or maybe you just started listening to season two, what we've been doing is building a systematic and and building a systematic. You look at individual doctrines that zone in on particular areas of study, and we're building that. So we began with a, a section on bibliology and looking at the study of the Bible, and then we hopped into theology proper and the study of God and looked at the Trinity and God the Father, and then we hopped into anthropology and looked at the study of man and related to that homardiology with the study of sin and building from there we have now introduced uh, the next uh, doctrinal series and that is Christology and so we've done uh, two episodes already in a lengthy discussion of Christology that this will turn into uh, the first one uh, Christology part one was uh, just kind of a, a an overview kind of a little wetting the appetite about the overview or the uh, yeah an overview of the, the grand distinction of Christianity essentially arguing if you don't get Christ right you can't get anything else right um, and then uh, last last week we looked at the preexistence uh, of Christ and uh, and and it essentially arguing for the eternality of Jesus um, as part of the Godhead and so uh, with that kind of uh, plug in play we're now um, hopping into this episode, which is our third part in the Christology series, which is the deity of Christ. And um, Lance, before I let you kind of take off with that, um, 
I'll just mention there is going to be overlap. We know that, that the pre-existence of Christ is related to the deity of Christ, but that's kind of the nature of systematic. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that systematic, all these uh, all these uh, episodes and the, uh, the content comes together. And so if you're new, I would encourage you. Yeah, we've got a ton of episodes. What is this, Lance? Episode 46. Um, yeah. We've got a lot of episodes, but if you really just want to come, kind of catch up on the systematic side, go and look at those little mini series that we do where we looked at uh, bibliology, theology proper, anthropology, homardiology. Those are the ones that are kind of uh, progressively building. The other ones are more standalone type episodes. So uh, work your way through those and uh, you'll you'll be up to speed so that we can walk through Christology together. Yeah, man, that's gold. Appreciate the review. Uh, essentially on the podcast, we are putting together an episode after episode systematic uh, in, in a similar manner to purchasing or reading through uh, systematic where we're doing a little podcast form of that. Um, now we're, we're shutting down publishers as we speak, everybody wanting to transcribe these episodes and throw it into a book. I don't know, man, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's in the future. (laughs) I don't don't think, I don't think I could handle all the, all the notoriety that would come from that. We're just, we're just, we're too under the radar. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Well, one of the, one of the uh, points of emphasis that we're trying to make, and we've made uh, on, on the past as we've worked through the systematic, but in particular, I think we've kind of cranked this uh, component up is that as we build our Christology, we are wanting to do theology. Um, in other words, we don't want our listeners believing what we are saying about Christ because we are saying it. We mm-hmm. want people, uh, our listeners, to believe exactly what the scriptures teach about Christ. So we, we've worked really hard on our episode guides uh, with Christology, uh, formulating the guide in a way um, that articulates and shows how to do theology. In other how do you cultivate what you believe about Christ? Uh, you know, not based on what you read. Um, necessarily in a systematic, uh, not based on what you read uh, on the internet or through hearsay, but develop your Christology based on the Word of God. And, and that's really what we're trying to stick to um, in this series. That's, man, that's a good word. I, I think we, we've kind of touched on this before, um, in, and I think we even mentioned this back in our episode on the Trinity. Uh, so the Trinity would be a very related doctrine. Go back and listen to that episode if you're wanting a refresher on this. But uh, one of the things that we talked about is how oftentimes we, if you grow up in the church, you've heard Jesus is fully God and fully man. And it's just kind of one of those Okay, yeah, that's just what I was taught. But what does this, what does the Bible say, and how do we develop that? How do you defend that? We've talked about an apologetic or a defense of what the what the Bible actually says, and so we're going to discuss in the course of these three. We've got three episodes uh, lined up. This one is on the deity of Christ. Up next, we'll talk about the humanity of Christ, and then uh, the the third episode that follows, we'll talk about the person of Christ, how those two natures uh, come together in one person. And so um, I love what Lewis Burkhoff has said, you guys who have listened to the podcast know I'm a huge fan of Lewis Burkhoff and his systematic, but he, he says from the earliest times, the church confessed the doctrine of the two natures of Christ and the church accepted the doctrine of the two natures of the two natures in one person, not because it had a complete understanding of this mystery, but because it clearly saw it in a mystery revealed by the word 
of God. So that's what we're arguing, Lance. Like, this is not just because my dad told me when I was a kid that Jesus is fully God, fully man. This is because this mystery has been revealed in the Word of God. And what we want to do with this episode and these few episodes is uncover and reveal some of that mystery. Yeah, uh, appreciate you uh, previewing you know, sort of this mini series within Christology, you know, these three episodes that you're talking about, beginning with the one that we're recording um, right now. Um, Charles Hodge, he breaks up uh, his study of the person of Christ or Christology in, in the same manner. Uh, in his systematic, uh, Charles Hodge says, the facts which the Bible teaches concerning the person of Christ are, first, that he was truly man, Second, he was truly God. Thirdly, he was one person. This is the whole doctrine of the Incarnation as it lies in the Scriptures and in the faith of the Church. So as you mentioned, TJ, um, we're going to follow in Hodge's uh, steps here and use his quote from his systematic uh, that basically outlines where we're going here with, with the next three episodes. Yeah, so like you mentioned First episode here, the deity of Christ. That's what we're talking about with this one. Next, we'll talk about the humanity. And then the one that follows, we'll talk about the person and how the the divine nature and the human nature uh, come together in one person of Christ. But let me go ahead and ask this question, Lance, as we discuss this, because I've thumbed through, I don't know, half a dozen, six to eight systematic theologies as I was preparing uh, to, to have this conversation. And not every systematic does it the same way. Right. Like some have uh, some begin with the humanity of Christ, some begin with the deity of Christ. So why are we doing it the way we're doing it? How, what comments might you have on this? Yeah, one, I would say I don't necessarily think that there is a wrong way to do this. Um, I'm with you looking through a few systematics. You see, you know, good, godly uh, theologians landing on uh, both sides here, beginning with the humanity or beginning with the divinity of Christ. Um I think, at least now, why I would lean with going towards uh, the divinity study first is because uh, I, I, I would argue that that is the major issue uh, that our culture uh, is facing, um, as opposed to, you know, back in the early centuries of the church, the battle wasn't necessarily for the divinity of Christ, although that battle was there, um, re really the the, the hottest part of the fire was over um, was, was over the humanity of, mm -hmm. of Jesus, or over the humanity. So I think that that argument has somewhat flip-flopped uh, during our time. So yep. if I was to sit down and write a systematic, or if I was to sit down and record a podcast going through a systematic, I would probably go with a divinity, you know, just for those reasons. What, what, yeah. what you got? Yeah, I, I think, well, I think if you wanted to make a case in the way that we've constructed our systematic, if you wanted to make a case for going humanity first, okay, yes, because we just came off of anthropology, so that in that sense it would flow um, in, in that direction. But I, I would argue, um, just from a logical standpoint, that Jesus, uh, we've already talked about his pre-existence, that he was eternally divine, and then he became man. Uh, so eternally, he has this divinity, so logically the divinity would precede then the humanity. So I, I think that I'm not going to die on this hill. Uh, there are theologians who we greatly respect who might do it differently. That's okay. I don't think that it's really something to really 
uh, argue about or, or have a, a debate over. I just do think that it's worth mentioning to those who are listening that we put some thought into why we're coming to this, uh, the order that we are. Uh, in other words, we're not just like throwing a bunch of information about Christology on a page and saying, okay, let's talk about Jesus. Like we have order, there's structure, it's systematized. So I just think that that's worth mentioning. Um, so we, we've talked already about where we want to go, and that is to the scriptures. And uh, there are uh, so many verses that talk about the deity or the divinity of Christ. And uh, we, we referenced last episode the four major Christological uh, passages, John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, Philippians 2. Um, you, could, you could camp out in those four passages and develop a huge portion of your Christology, just because there's so much there. But as I began to walk through and look at all of the uh, just the breadth of what scripture has to say. I was so amazed at how many verses spoke to this issue. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, again, I'm a big Burkhoff fan, but I love this quote. He says, the proof of the deity of Christ is so abundant that no one who accepts the Bible as the infallible word of God can entertain any doubt on this point. In other words, he says, if you believe that the Bible's inspired, if you believe that the Bible is the word of God, you can't get away from this. It is everywhere. And you can't even debate it because it's not an issue of, oh, how are you interpreting this verse? He says it is just littering the entire scriptures to the point to where the deity of Christ is, it just comes right out of the word of God. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to drive home here uh, before we launch into the text that we are using the scripture and the scripture alone to build our foundation for who Jesus Christ is. Princetonian uh, theologian B.B. Warfield, he said, the constitution of our Lord's person is a matter of revelation, not of human thought. Mm. Uh, So again, our arguments, they're they're not human ingenuity, not human wisdom, not human philosophy, but our arguments solely rest in the revelation of God, which we would call the Holy Scripture. Yeah, man, that's really good. Um, Okay, so let, let's do it then. Let's look at what Scripture has to say um, about the deity or the divinity of Christ. Um, Lance, are we starting? Where, where would you start? Would you go New Testament? Is there anything in the Old Testament? Where would you go to, to have this conversation? Well, back to what you said earlier about those Christological passages um, uh, that you listed off, those four, um, beginning with John 1. You know, we, we've talked about on previous episodes that you could exposit those texts and you could come to the conclusion that we're coming to as well. So we've decided in this episode here to um, take more of a bird's eye view approach at, you know, all of the evidence as a whole. Um, in reality, as we move into these individual points, we could make an episode uh, out of every individual point. Um, but we wanted just to collect all of the data, I guess you could yeah. say. Uh, to take a bird's eye view here uh, for the divinity of Christ. So um, I'll I'll at least introduce us here to the first point, and then um, I'll let you talk about a few of these passages. But the first place that we could go to defend the divinity of Christ um, isn't the New Testament. And in fact, we can go with Old Testament revelation, uh, the, the documents that were written before the time of Jesus, to defend the divinity of, of Jesus. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. Uh, we, we've already kind of referenced some of these 
last week in our uh, discussion on the pre-existence of Christ, how Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 6, that, that prophetic passage, and we talked about Micah chapter 5, verse 2, again, uh, referencing the eternality of the Son and um, of, the, of the Chosen One, the Messiah. And so those passages have already kind of hinted at the deity of Christ. But uh, you also have in the Psalter, you have Psalm uh, 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 110. Each of those Psalms have uh, verses that are quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. And Hebrews 1 is talking about the the, the preeminence or the, su- the supremacy of Christ and quotes these psalms um, as a way of, of showing that these psalms were indicating or, or referring to um, the divine one who was to come in the form of man um, as the Messiah. And so Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 110, Isaiah 9, 6, Micah 5, 2. Already we've had a handful of passages that have referred uh, back to uh, this eternal son who's coming. Uh, you also have Daniel chapter 7, a uh, really significant passage. Lance, I'm going to let you talk about that one because you, you mentioned that last time when we when we had this conversation. Man, it's like deja vu. Like I know, I'm, I know. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what, what did we say last week that got recorded, and what did we say that got deleted? Yeah, man. And if I think you know, in in my mind, I may refer back to the deleted episode as you right. know something that we mentioned that our listeners got, which they did not because right. we don't have it. Um, yeah, but to to go back to uh, another prophetic passage, uh, you know, and in the same bag of of. Uh, prophetic passages that you've mentioned, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Um, what a lot of people miss about the book of Daniel is, yes, the first half is narrative, but the second half is really prophecy uh, regarding um, uh, world empires, uh, the end times, and mixed in there really as, as the focus of those prophecies in Daniel chapter 7 is a reference to the Son of Man, uh, and this mm-hmm. son of man who's approaching the ancient of days. So we have uh, the triune God here in Daniel chapter 7 with the Father uh, as stated as the ancient of days, and then Jesus Christ as uh, the son of man. Um, and I would add to that one more passage in, in the in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 um, it is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, uh, this Messiah who is divine. Uh, and that passage also is key uh, for a guy by the name of John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's that's really good. So I, I don't want to belabor the point, um, but I do think that it's worth just mentioning as we did that this is not a novel idea when we get to the New Testament. Now, we've said this before. We will say it again. Progressive revelation, right? Like, as you read through the Old Testament, you may not have been able to understand all of that as it had been concealed. But in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament becomes more clear. We can look, knowing what we do now, to see that the Old Testament prophesied and spoke of an eternal, uh, spoke of a deity of the Messiah. It wasn't just going to be a mere man. It was going to be uh, God himself uh, in the flesh. And so uh, while the Jews miss that a lot of times, um, the reality is, is now we can see uh, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit what that text said. Uh, but with that background in play, let's now jump to the New Testament. That's where the predominant argumentation is going to be. We've got kind of six headings for arguments from the New Testament. And the first of them is the names that are attributed to Jesus. And I think that this is 
uh, overlooked uh, as we had our deleted conversation. I was reminded so much of how easy it is to gloss over these things. But uh, frequently in the New Testament, names are attributed to Jesus, which which refer to um, his divinity. And the first one of those names, the most prominent one, is the name Lord. And that that word Lord that's applied to, to Jesus, of course, many times that word can just mean master and it may not be used in a divine way. Uh, but when used to translate uh, the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek Septuagint, this word Lord was a translation of the Hebrew Yahweh. Uh, Jehovah. And so it became a very prominent uh, name to attribute to the deity or the, the, the magnitude, the greatness of God himself. And many New Testament references to Jesus as Lord are quotations of Old Testament texts that actually employ one of the Hebrew names for God. And so the apostles in doing this, they gave the title Lord to Jesus in a divine sense. And uh, there, there are many of these passages uh, th- that come to mind. Philippians chapter 2, a uh, very familiar text, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Uh, Romans 8, 38, 39, uh, certainly that one. But Lance, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you can, you, can you walk us through uh, the, the verse in Luke chapter 2, which not only includes Lord, but it includes another significant name? Yeah, um, you know, the, the passages, the references that you mentioned so often, and I'm, I'm speaking of, you know, from personal experience here, so often I'm, I'm just so familiar with these passages that I, I overlook every single point that you just made about this title or this name uh, for, for Jesus. Um, but the passage here that we're, we're discussing in Luke chapter 2, it's the, the birth narrative, the, the birth of Jesus. Uh, Luke 2.11 says, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, notice verse 11, it, <laughs> it says nothing about the name of Jesus, but it, it calls him Savior which is referring to God in the Old Testament. We'll see that here in just a minute. It's referring to him as Christ, which is Messiah. And then, as, as you mentioned and explained, TJ, it's also calling Jesus Lord. You know, even, even uh, I think of Jesus, and at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, you know, uh, again, mm-hmm. e- even, even Jesus here is recognizing his, his lordship uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, and, and we could do this. I'm telling you, there are so many references, and it's so easy. Like You, you said this uh, to me in our conversation the other day, that, that it, and it really stuck with me, how often we just like throw those titles in with his name. And so it just becomes like this nomenclature about who Jesus is, but we forget that w- what it carries with it. And to say Jesus is Lord, or to say our Lord Jesus Christ, is to say something very significant, and that is that Jesus is himself divine. Uh, not only do we see Lord, we also see references to Jesus being called God uh, directly. In John chapter 1, the very familiar passage, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is the Word. Jesus 
was God. Direct statement there. Uh, I also love John chapter 20. Remember, uh, Thomas is not with the rest of the disciples. Jesus appears to them, so he's known as Doubting Thomas. He, he wasn't there. He didn't see. Well, when Jesus does finally show up, he says, here, look at my hands, feel my side. And it says that Thomas uh, reaches out and he answers him. And he says, my Lord and my God. So he, he calls him Lord, but he also says, you are God directly. I mean, it's just straightforward out of the text. Yeah, a couple more to add to that. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, you've got another reference uh, that, that you could look at and go to for this point in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 5, the kingdom of him who is Christ and God. I mean, the evidence just within the names of Christ is overwhelming. Mm. Um, you again, I've said this before on the podcast that in in order to get away from the divinity of Christ, you would have to rip out page yeah. after page after page, both Old and New Testament. Um, yeah, a, another name that we could go to, or TJ, do you have anything to add to that? No, keep rolling. Yeah, another name that we could go to. Um, you know, we've mentioned Lord, we've mentioned God. Um, but the New Testament speaks of Jesus as Savior. Um, many passages uh, deal with this. We already looked at one uh, from Luke chapter 2. Uh, you go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. Uh, Christ is said to be the Savior of the body, uh, referring to uh, the church. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, um, a familiar verse, uh, probably for other reasons, um, Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be the first to admit that when I read Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, I, I'm not focusing in on the Savior part of that verse. I'm just more concerned with the citizenship that I now have in heaven and will receive you know, uh, in, in the future. Yeah, you and I had that conversation this week, and I'm preaching from Philippians 1. There's an allusion there to Philippians 3.20. I'm really excited to draw that out, but it's about the citizenship. And I remember when you had said that, how easy it is for me to skip over that phrase, which talks about how Jesus is the Lord and also the Savior. And those allusions, you've already mentioned this, those allusions are to the God of the Old Testament who saves. Like that's that's an it's not an insignificant detail to call him savior. It's not just like, okay, well, he is our savior, but it's that's an eternal and that's a, a divine name uh, to say that he is savior. So that's uh, that's really significant and easy, as you mentioned, and we've already talked about to gloss over that. But uh, um, let's move to the next heading. Uh, we've, like I said, a sixfold argument. The first is the names. The second one, this is a quick one, but it's it's amazing how many there, uh, of these there are. And that is that Jesus is often equated with the Father and included alongside the Father as his equal. And this is especially prominent in greetings to letters. And, and I came across this in my study of Philippians uh, 1. You know that I've been walking through verse by verse. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 2, uh, Paul is is um, giving his greeting. He's giving his introduction, and and he has this little phrase. He says, "Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it seems so like, it's just so easy to gloss over that. It seems so like minuscule, like let's get into the heart of the letter. But when, when he says that, when he says grace to you and peace from God, our father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, he's equating the son with the father in their divinity. He is saying that the source of grace and peace is God, the father and it's God, the son. And that's so easy to, to gloss over. I can't tell you how many times I've read through those those introductions and missed them, but I, I just thumbed through. It is in Romans, uh, of course, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, 2nd Peter, 2nd uh, John. Like it is very, very common in the New Testament and very easy to miss. Yeah. I mean, what I love about that, TJ, is the fact that you know, Paul writes that, you know, in the introductory portions of his letters and for lack of a better word, he's just nonchalant in it. Yeah. Of course, you know, this is an obvious dear truth to him, but the idea is it's just assumed. It's just assumed by Paul, by all the recipients uh, of the letters, whether it's an individual or the churches, when they read, uh, you know, God and Christ uh, in, in the introduction uh, as equals, that's th- that's just no big deal in, in the sense right. of they just expect that because that that is th- that is Christianity uh, at, at its core uh, back back in the first century uh, up until now. Yeah, that's man, that's a, that's a great observation. I, I remember reading one of the commentators um, in Philippians one made the observation that uh, Paul in the most simple and rudimentary type of greeting just loads so much doctrine and theology into like the most simple thing. Like he's just, it's just saying, Hey, like it's like the subject line of an email, by the way, Jesus is divine. Like that's just so it's so simple, but so powerful. Um, Yeah. Let me, uh, let me read from Jude verse one um, to those who are called by God, the father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, most scholars believe that Jude, uh, who wrote this short epistle, is the half-brother of Jesus. And here he's equating his half-brother, Jesus, with God. And and by the way, according to John chapter 7, Jude was not a believer before the resurrection. So there's been some transforming... uh, Uh, transforming power that's gone on in the heart of Jude to be opened up to this idea that yes, his half brother is indeed equal to God. Yeah, man, that's, that's such a good word. Um, Great observation. By the way, those of you who are listening, that wasn't on the God. That was all bonus material right there. Straight from, straight from my man Lance over there. Um, Always appreciate that. I always get nervous whenever he talks off the God, but it it ends up always being good. Um, Dude, I'm nervous too, man. I start going, I'm like, oh my gosh, here comes the sweat. Yeah, Michael Scott style. Sometimes you start a <laughs> sentence and you don't know where it's going. You just hope you find it along the way. Um, okay, that's that's kind of the second bullet point, second heading. We've we've looked at how the names speak of the divinity of Jesus. We've looked at how he's been equated with the Father. Uh, third, let's look briefly at the attributes that are attributed to Christ is to say that Jesus has uh, certain attributes that are only divine attributes. So we've looked already at the pre-existence or uh, in many ways, the eternality uh, of Jesus. Although you could continue in that discussion of eternality that talks about uh, in Revelation 1 uh, verses 8 and 9, but in particular verse 8, 
Uh, he Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So the eternality of Jesus himself and speaking in that way uh, points to his divinity because that eternality is only attributed to God. Um, you could you could speak of his sovereignty uh, over uh, over creation um, directly in the way that he calms a storm, right? Like like the the disciples are at sea and things are going nuts, and Jesus just speaks and the waves obey him. Um, Lance, what, what else? What other what other attributes of of Jesus uh, point to his divinity? Yeah, we didn't put together an exhaustive list, but we just jotted down a few here that will at least give us the idea of you know what we're talking about. Um, you, you could talk about his immutability that he cannot change. Um, Hebrews 13 verse eight, uh, would identify that attribute. Uh, Jesus is holy, uh, multiple times in the new Testament we're, we're told that he is, he is set apart. He is without sin. Uh, Hebrews four, uh, verse 15, uh, would articulate that point. Well, uh, I would also add that I think this would be an interesting study, uh, for our listeners to do uh, on their own is to go through the gospel narrative and to identify uh, how many times demons refer to Jesus as the Holy One of God. You know, again, I mean, that's one of the things we love about the New Testament is it's not just Jesus making claims. He's not the only line of evidence, although that would be enough. But we see unbelievers, we see demons, we see angels, we see different categories and different groups all identifying Jesus as the Son of God. Man, um, that's that's a great observation. That, that's, that is so good. Every category of creature that can testify to his deity does so in the New Testament. Man, that's that's a great observation. Well, that goes back to the you know Philippians two passage that you'll be preaching through that every knee will bow, you know, before Jesus Christ and and confess Him as Lord. Um, we we just see that kind of a, a picture of that or a preview of that in in the Gospels. Man, that's great. Man, another another bonus observation there. That's man, you're, you're feeling just, it. Yeah, we better just stop now while I'm ahead. Hey, that's what happened to me last time, and it got cut off. You know, I, <laughs> all our listeners, I was dropping them left and right, man. It's so good. Uh, okay, so we've talked about making this this uh, this argument for the divinity of Christ in the New Testament. We've looked at his names. We've looked at how he's been equated with the Father. We've looked at his divine attributes. Uh, next, let's look at the activity that he uh, that he performs, and as a, he he performs and does the works. Of God, where where build something from that? Unpack that for us. Yeah, you've already mentioned Jesus calming the storm. Uh, we've got Jesus walking on water. Uh, we've got Jesus casting out demons. He's you know creating food um, out, out of nothing. He, he's bringing people back to life. Uh, we've got a number of accounts where Jesus is resurrecting someone from the dead. Um, no, of course, he resurrects himself, we're told. Um, uh, you know, again, what's interesting to note is that the Gospel of John highlights Jesus's miraculous works to prove that he is the Son of God. Um, I think that's John, is that John 20, 30, and 31, maybe the theme? Yes. The, yeah, the, sounds, theme, yeah. the theme of the Gospel of John. So, you know, again, the, the, the activity. 
specifically in the miraculous works of Jesus, these aren't just to make the gospel narrative, you know, have some action or crank up the pace. Right. Uh, right. They're, they're solely there to prove that he is God. That's man. That's well said. I don't, I don't have anything to add to that. The, the point, as you just said there, the point of the gospel of John is to show uh, that is John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that may by, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's exactly right. These miracles are recorded, not so that the Bible can become a bestseller. They are recorded to indicate that Jesus is indeed divine. Um, and this is significant. We're going to, we're going to, uh, come back to this a little bit, but we see, we see other miraculous works in other characters in some in the new Testament. We have a little bit of, of this activity with some of the apostles. You have some activity in the old Testament I'm thinking of Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, um, a couple of other sporadic type of things, but Jesus consistently not working through anyone else mm. and and not working uh it's not God working through Jesus the way he does with other human instruments but he is doing these things himself this is his own divine authority he has the ability in his divinity to do these things what what other comment would you make on that yeah i would just say that, that was off script too man we might as well just <laughs> burn this guide and and just freestyle this thing oh, the rest man. of the way out but at some point um, we will freestyle an episode. That'll be fun. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. You know, talking about Jesus' works, miracles, we could, we could do this, do this all day. Um, uh, and that's the point. Um, right. He is God. He, he is miraculous. Um, which takes us into our next point, um, is because of who he is, he receives worship like God receives worship, um, which, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this point off and on uh, since the attempt to record on Monday, but the Bible is so against setting up other gods, uh, erecting other idols, worshiping false gods. The Bible is so anti that. Then you get to the New Testament and you've got people worshiping Christ with no backlash right you know which which is now of course you get that from some of the unbelieving Jews obviously but, but in terms of all of scripture anti worshiping another god anti idols but but when we get to Jesus it's allowed that's, yeah that's a great observation i just got back from prayer meeting and one of the things that we talked about before we began was this tendency towards idolatry. Just kind of did like a little mini uh, um, Bible study type thing for a few minutes before. And we looked at Isaiah 44, 9 through 17. Mm. We looked at Psalm 115, and we looked at this tendency towards, and the foolishness that the Bible speaks of towards idolatry. We looked at Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. We looked at Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, verses uh, 12 and then 15 to 20, and this tendency to to want to create an image, but God's re rejection of that. And so there's a there's so much, you, you said it well, there's such a rebuke against 
false gods or, or idols or worshiping anyone other than Yahweh. Yahweh alone receives worship. Uh, I am the, uh, I am the Lord God. I am one. I, mm-hmm. you know, God's God is a jealous God, but yet when Jesus shows up, there is no, Jesus is not, is not saying not to worship him. We, we see that from angels, by the way, in the new Testament, right? Like when in John's uh, revelation, he, he, he bows down to where an angel says, no, 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 don't worship me. Like I, worship the Christ, worship the son. And, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus never, uh, never rejects worship. Anytime, uh, the disciples worship him, uh, anytime they, they, they claim like Thomas did my Lord and my God, or, or Peter says, you are, you are God. You are the, the Messiah. Jesus accepts that worship, uh, which is significant because if not, if he, if he's not God, then he would reject it like other, like other characters in the new Testament do. Man, I, I wish I was in that little Bible study tonight. I'm, I'm, I missed out. Any recordings of that? that no, I'll, here? I'll hit you up with that later. When we get done recording, I'll just, I'll just lecture you. Man, okay, yeah, I'm in. I'm in <laughs> on that. So yeah, so Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got about six claims that he makes uh, throughout his incarnation. I'll, I'll run through the first couple and then kick it back to you, TJ, so you can talk about this Erickson quote that you've got here yeah. on the guide. But Jesus claims to have authority over sins, to forgive sins in particular. He claims to have authority over the Sabbath. Uh, that's John chapter 5 to, to a T. Go back and read that passage. And then he claims to have a unique relationship with the Father. You've mentioned that already. I and the Father are one from John chapter mm-hmm. 10. So, so Jesus is making again, that, that's why it's been said he's uh, either a liar or a lunatic or or Lord, right? right? Like, I mean, the claims that he is is making day after day after day, um, I mean, you better be able to back it up. Right, right. No, that's, you've already hit on those significant claims that are direct. And you hear this sometimes that people say, well, Jesus never claimed. He never specifically said, I am God. Well, he, those three words may not have come out of his mouth, but they might as well have. And we've already talked last, last week about the, the, the I am statements, especially when he says before Abraham was, I am like, that is a, that is a claim to deity. That is a claim to say, I am. That's that's what God's name is. God says, I am who I am. Uh, that that was his revelation to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. And he, he gives himself the same name. That is a claim to deity. Uh, he, he claimed to be the Son of God in that way. He also accepted uh, the disciples there when they attribute deity to him. We already talked about that with, with Thomas when he says, my Lord and my God. Great opportunity there for Jesus to correct him if that's not true. Uh, if, I, if he yeah, wasn't what, God. Yeah, what'd you call me? Right. Like, <laughs> hey, let me fix that for you. But Jesus doesn't do that. He accepts it. And in fact, before his uh, crucifixion, he is uh, accused uh, by others as as claiming to be the Son of God and claiming to be uh, God himself. And he remains silent. He, he doesn't reject that statement. And so Jesus, in in this way, he, he claims to be eternal. He claims to be the only way to God. He claims, uh, as you mentioned, uh, to have the authority to forgive sins. He, he claims deity. Um, and at the end of all of this, I, I, I wrote down this quote from Millard Erickson because I think it's it, it kind of encapsulates this, this point. He says, from all the foregoing, 
looking at all these these uh, passages and verses that reference this very, very thing. He says, it seems difficult to escape the conclusion that Jesus understood himself as equal with the Father and as possessing the right to do things that only God has the right to do. So, Lance, you, you, you made a great observation earlier. Not only do we see demons making this claim, non-believers, believers, angels, but Jesus himself makes the claim. Jesus says, I am God. And so in and of in, that in and of itself is enough. But when you couple it with all the other weight that we've mentioned, the, the, the evidence for the deity of Christ is insurmountable. Um, anything else you want to add before we go to kind of the nail in the coffin, pun intended? <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, we're going to put the cherry on top here, yeah. put the icing yeah. on the cake uh, with this last uh, this last point here, um, is that Jesus has the power and the ability to resurrect the dead. Um, so we've got a few examples of this in the Gospels. Uh, Luke chapter 7, um, Jesus raises the widow's son in the village of Nain. Uh, I taught on that uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, Jairus's, uh, 12 year old daughter of Jairus, Mark chapter five is raised from the dead. And of course, uh, you know, next to Jesus's resurrection, the most recognizable one is probably Lazarus mm-hmm. in, in John chapter 11. Um, but I would just add to this and then I'm going to send it back to you, TJ, is that Jesus is the life giver. Mm-hmm. He he determines life and he has the ability, like you said, from within himself to raise somebody from the dead. You know, he's not going to grab Peter, you know, hey, you know, you need to, you know, get, let me give you the power to get John out of the uh, tomb here. He, he's doing this himself. Yeah, that's, um, when you mentioned that, the life giver, immediately my mind went to Colossians chapter 1, um, right? Whenever he says he is before all things and in him all things hold together, he's the one who sustains his creation. Uh, because if Jesus were to take away uh, his sustenance, all of creation would just cease to exist uh, because that's who he is. That's what he does. But uh, you mentioned his his uh, power and his dominion over death in the sense that he's raised these others from the dead, um, which speaks to his deity, but the ultimate, Mm -hmm. the ultimate is his own resurrection, right? right? Like he defeated death and in his raising from the dead, um, something significant happens and, and we need to, we need to catch this. Um, God has the power to raise anyone from the dead. We know that, uh, he can do that. Uh, he can defeat death. But when Jesus is raised from the dead, something significant happens, and that is that it's an act of the Trinity. Um, in other words, yes, God the Father raises Jesus from the dead because we see that laid out. Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 32, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, speaks of the Father raising him. But it's also true that Jesus was was acting within this to bring about his own resurrection. And that's significant because we want to show that the the scriptures speak of Jesus being God himself. And you you see that in passages like John chapter 10, when Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down in my own, own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. So through the father and the son, uh, actively participating and the spirit as well, uh, actively participating, Jesus raises himself 
from the dead and and uh, cooperatingly works with the Father and the Spirit to defeat death. And so his resurrection uh, is, is cements the case for the deity of Christ. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And I think uh, one of the most intriguing aspects of his resurrection is the fact that for three and a half years, he said he was going to do it. Mm -hmm. He said he was going to do it. That goes all the way back to John chapter two, just after Jesus uh, turns water into wine. Uh, In verse 19, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Mm. And then the text goes on to say he was speaking about the temple of his body. So three years before, Really, time after time, and maybe even more than just recorded in the scriptures, but he did it a number of times in in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. He says, "Look, I'm going to die, but then I'm going to raise my life up again." And he gives details in John two. You know, he says it's going to be three days. In other gospel accounts, he tells us that he's going to be murdered. He's going to be killed. You know, he he really identifies who it will be by um, the time period, the time frame. I mean, it's, uh, again, not only is his resurrection miraculous and awe-inspiring, but the fact that he just kept saying he was going to do it, and then he yeah. did, you know. Yeah, that's, that, man, that's that's great. Um, one final comment on this. I, I just thought that this was really powerful um, in preparing for this. Uh, one of the things I read, talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, which is a very familiar text, especially in terms of the resurrection. Uh, it's one that Paul talks about. Um, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then we of all pe- people are most to be pitied. All of Everything that we believe depends on this reality. Um, but at the end of this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love this because when he says death was swallowed up in victory, when you start to think about what is he referencing? Well, death wasn't swallowed up in victory when Lazarus came out. It, it, death wasn't swallowed up in victory when the widow's son or when Jairus's daughter was raised. Death was swallowed up in victory when Jesus raised Jesus from the dead as the God-man with all authority in the universe, and he was never to die again. That's when death was swallowed up, and it all comes, it all hinges on the resurrection of the divine Son of God. Man, I like what you said there. Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. Man, just just as he predicted. Right. Again, the the evidence is there. You know, back when we started recording this episode, we said we wanted to let the scripture speak, not TJ and I, mm-hmm. and we're not TJ and me. And um, the the the, the, script, the scripture is speaking. It, the scripture is clear yeah. from many different angles, from many different approaches. Again, notice there's. Uh, no eisegeting a text. There's no manipulating any of the text. It's just about as straightforward as straightforward can possibly be. I mean, the bottom line of the bottom line, as Steve Lawson would say, is the fact that Jesus truly is divine. And there's no way around that other than the willful ignorant point that we talked about on um, some of the objections last episode. Yeah, that's that's good. Um, okay, let's let's try to 
let's try to wrap this up because I I hope that you mentioned that flyby. I hope that this bird's eye view, we've seen just the, I mean, just the litany of texts that, that come in to play here to speak of the divinity of Christ and texts which are often taken for granted, texts which those of us who have are familiar with our Bibles, we gloss over because we don't think about it anymore because it's just kind of second nature, but texts which speak to this significant theological reality, and that is that Jesus is divine. And that's where I want to go to kind of wrap up, Lance. Why is this significant? What are some of the implications of the divinity of Christ? Why does this matter as we're thinking about uh, getting the person of Christ right? Why does he have to be divine? And why does that, what implications does that have for us? Yeah, I always go to uh, the, the book of Second John, that if we don't have the right doctrine or the right teaching of Christ, then we don't have God. And according to Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 3, that knowing God is eternal life. Eternal life is uh, the the culmination of it is that you know God. You know, it isn't necessarily that you're forgiven for your sins, although you are. It isn't necessarily that you've, or you will receive that citizenship, Philippians chapter 3, in a new glorified body, although you will. E- eternal life is knowing God, and it can only be done through uh, the person, again, the person uh, of Jesus Christ, and one aspect of that is that this person, Jesus, is divine. And that's so good. Uh, I, that's so well said. That wasn't even on the guide. I mean, just I don't even know what else to say. Um, other implications, since I'm going to go back to the guide, since you're you're just crushing it. Uh, a couple of other things that that I wanted to draw out here. Um, you already kind of hinted at this. Because of the divinity of Christ, we can have a a full revelation of God himself. So if, if Jesus is not divine, then we don't have a revelation of God. We, we, we only have a, a glimpse through something else. But, but because Jesus is the full incarnation of God himself, he's the image of the invisible God, uh, Colossians 1.15 tells us. So um, we now have a way to understand who God is. Um, and also, we have a the possibility for salvation. Um, we, we've talked already, Lance, a lot about how these doctrines are all interrelated, but especially the doctrine of salvation. We're going to, we're going to hit this multiple times. Um, but salvation is possible because only an infinite God can bear the necessary penalty for a sin that has occurred against an infinite God. Um, so if Jesus is not divine, then he can't bear the divine wrath that is poured out upon sinners. Man, I don't know. I don't know if we, be, uh, man, wow, we better just start this soteriology series We're, ASAP as possible, I'm ready. man. <laughs> I'm ready. Let's get there. Let's get there. No, that, 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 that was great. Um, and Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. You, you know, it, it is an absolute necessity that we have Jesus Christ. If we don't have Christ, we have nothing. If mm. we have Christ, we have everything. Yeah. You know, yeah, I love the I love this quote from Wayne Grudem. Uh, he says, "If if Jesus is not fully God, then we have no salvation, and ultimately no Christianity." Um, this is the crux, man. If, if Jesus is not God, then we have no hope. Um, and and it, it's just, I think, like when you break it down and you consider that the weightiness of that, you're going, man, like everything depends on this reality. And uh, and I. I'm thankful that the word is abundantly clear uh, on this subject. So um, 
any other observations before we wrap up and head to the initiative? Any anything else that needs to be said? Yeah, d- just a reminder that this is uh, part one of this three part mini series that we're doing here in Christology. So again, we're wrapping up the divinity episode. We'll talk about and speak on his humanity next week, um, and then the third episode will be on uh, the person of Jesus. How do both of these natures uh, work together? Um, so, so I'll go ahead and kick off our uh, initiative here. Um, actually, for seminary, the last couple of weeks I've been working through John Owen's "The Glory of Christ." And yeah, John I've Owen, a, I've seen a lot of Owen quotes from you. I assumed that you were you were digging through some stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a, a tough read, but man, there's some value in it. But here, here's what John Owen says about Christ. How be it, this glory, referring to the person of Christ, is the glory of our religion, the glory of the church, the sole rock upon which it is built, and the only spring of present grace and future glory. Mm. Look, all we have is Christ. All we have is Christ. Mm. And how important is it that we get Christ right? And that starts with by understanding his divinity. Yeah, man. that That's exactly where I wanted to go, wrapping up, try to summarize this thing, is to say, if we are going to understand who Jesus is, we have to recognize that Jesus is nothing less than God. Now, he's... There's more to his person. We're going to unpack some of that. But you cannot have Jesus if you don't have his full divinity. And if you take away any aspect of his divinity, uh, Christianity just crumbles in on itself. This is the revelation of God. And so um, I am so fired up right now um, just thinking about this stuff and 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 somewhat disappointed in myself at how often I miss this, how often I gloss over this. Like I'm just, I have a renewed vigor and, and uh, commitment to myself to pay attention to this in, in the pages of scripture when I read. Yeah, that's good. I mean, we're recording these episodes, you know, it's, it's more than just uh, to get content out, um, but it, it's for our own hearts and our mm-hmm. own soul, you know, um, I, I want I want the guides and the episodes to transform my own life. Yeah, um, amen. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Uh, well, thanks for having this conversation, and thanks for listening and tuning in with us. If you're not doing so already, make sure that you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and to our YouTube channel. Make sure you like us on Facebook at Reformed Informants and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at our underscore informants. And you can find access to all of our episodes and links to all of our social media platforms, as well as our brand new shop, all on our website at www.themajestiesmen.com slash Reformed Informants. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics of discussion, feel free to email us at reformedinformants at gmail.com.